I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me now to Matthew chapter 19, page 1528, 1528 in your pew Bibles. So as you have heard, um, we are in the midst of a series just started last week on the topic of human sexuality. We're calling it the bride and the lamb. <clears throat> and um, some of you who are just here, guests for Mother's Day today, you were lucky enough to get here on, on a day we're talking about this topic. So lucky you. Um, thank you for your prayers, the prayers of this church. I've heard from many of you over this past week that you've been praying uh, for me, for Pastor Young Kwong, and uh, grateful for those prayers. Thank you very much. And I hope that you'll continue to pray, not just for this series of messages, but for this church, for our denomination, and, um, and really for all of us as God's people as we consider these kinds of, of issues. Uh, let's turn to God's Word. Last week was kind of an introduction. Today we're, we're diving in. Uh, if you didn't get to hear last week's message, it's online. Um, and I encourage you to do that. Hopefully it kind of set the tone for how we want to approach this topic. But let's look at Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read the first 12 verses there. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, notice the words he uses here, Moses permitted you. He doesn't say Moses commanded you. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open so you may be able to, uh, to look back at the text as we go along today. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, where you end up has a lot to do with where you begin. It's not too profound. 
In our text this morning, Pharisees, some Pharisees come to Jesus with a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, there's a reason that these Pharisees have come to Jesus, but it's probably not because they consider His words to have life in them. It's not like they trust His words to build their lives on. It probably has a lot more to do with the background to this text, and that is that that John the Baptist was beheaded by King Herod because John the Baptist challenged Herod on his newest relationship, his newest marriage. He had just married his brother's wife, so he married his sister-in-law. John spoke out against that, lost his head because of that. And I think the Pharisees really are hoping for the same kind of thing to happen to Jesus, that Jesus will say something, say something wrong, cause him to lose his head. But the point is that their request of Jesus really is not very sincere here, okay? Jesus is not not their hope. Something similar um, happened in our society where Jesus really is no longer, maybe never has been much of our hope or the person that we turn to for sincere answers to our hardest questions. And that has seeped into the church as well where yes, we sort of want to know what Jesus says about things, but not really want to know. There are all sorts of questions, right, that, um, that are in our minds these days. It's not just questions about divorce, but all sorts of questions about human sexuality. For instance, is it lawful for, for same-sex people to marry? Uh, what about polyamory, which is uh, sort of the modern version of, of polygamy? And then there's always been the question about premarital sex, There's pornography. And yet, we don't ask Jesus these questions. We don't go to Him with the question because because we don't really trust where His answers might lead us. I mean, His answers might actually begin to impinge on some of our personal freedoms. And so what we do is we look around for other authorities that we can turn to, other, other authorities that might speak into these subjects. Often we turn to ourselves as the supreme authority in our lives. Back in 2015, uh, the Supreme Court, you know, redefined marriage in the United States and did that in a rather major way. Some people were surprised by that decision. Others were not. Carl Truman says, for one, that, that we should not have been surprised by that. He said, if you were following the precedents in the, in the Supreme Court, um, we should have seen that this change was, was on its way. And, and for instance, he holds up a court case that, that Pastor Young Kwong just referred to, Planned Parenthood of Southeast Pennsylvania versus Casey. That was in 1992. And as a part of that decision, uh, this is what was written, and, and this is what has become the basis for law in our country now. At the heart of liberty, it says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Okay, let me read that again. At the right or at the heart of liberty 
is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Okay, that's our right to define, to define our concept of existence. Now, that sounds pretty good. If I get to define my own existence, I get to define all of those things. Um, Truman writes, thankfully, yet um, child molesters and serial killers do not yet have the right to define their own concept of existence. But what he's trying to get at is, but it could go there anytime. If this is the basis for how you build your ethics, who's to say that anyone can't do anything? Right? We get to define our own concept of existence. In other words, you, where you end up has a lot to do with where you begin. And friends, right now we simply don't know where our society is going to end up. But last week, what we said is that here in the church, in the church of Jesus Christ, we want this to be a place of grace and of truth, both of those things together. We want this to be a place that does not devour widows' houses, but rather makes room for them, provides a place for them. We want to make the church a place where all of us as sinners can come and meet Jesus and be discipled by Him. This has to be a place where people can meet Jesus and be discipled by Him. And if that's truly where we want to end up, if that's truly the goal, then we have to begin with Jesus as well. We have to trust Jesus enough to know that He will lead us to a place of life, that He'll lead us to a place where we actually want to be, a good place, the right place. So that's where we're going to begin today, we're going to sort of begin where the Pharisees began by going to Jesus, but for all different reasons. It's actually because we do trust what our Lord has to say. Now, when Jesus is asked these questions regarding marriage and sexuality, where he goes is right back to the beginning. He goes back to the creation. He goes back to the Word of God. This is his authority. He begins with Genesis, and he gives us sort of the big picture of Scripture and how God established His creation and established marriage within that creation. Have you not read, he says, that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Something that we have to recognize that Jesus is doing here right up front is He is tying two texts together. He's tying Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together, all right? The words that He says there don't just flow in one long sentence. He's reading from Genesis 1.27 and then 2.24. So I'm going to try and say this briefly, but, but Genesis 1 sort of gives us a big picture of creation, right? This is what happened on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, all the way to day 6. Genesis 2 then sort of gives us a detailed account, right? It gives us a close-up picture of day 6, all right? So you have day or Genesis 1, all six days. Genesis 2 narrows that down and, and, and 
closes in on, on, on day six. <clears throat> what I just want us to see here is this entire creation account then, when you put all of it together, this creation account all ends with, all leads up to, however you want to put it, a marriage. Okay? Creation ends with a marriage. Marriage is part of God's created order. If you think about the, the account, creation doesn't stop with the creation of a man and a woman. It ends with the creation of a marriage. And in Jewish literature, things often worked up to the pinnacle, to the high point. So creation has sort of been leading to this point where there is a marriage. And when we look at Scripture, Scripture begins with a marriage. Scripture also ends with a marriage. It ends with the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to His bride, the church. Begins and ends, and really everything in between is about a marriage as well. As God often calls or refers to His people, whether that's His Old Testament people or New Testament people, He refers to His people as His bride. We don't just have sort of a legal relationship with God where he says, well, this is how I want you to live, and if you break a command, well, that's, that's one against you. What God says is we are in a marriage relationship. <clears throat> and so every time we sin against the Lord, he calls it adultery. It's a relationship sin. God views himself as in a marriage with us. And what I want us to see here, friends, is that this whole concept of marriage, it's built into us as a part of the creation. It's built into us. Right now, we keep hearing on the news about, um, about the bird flu, right? And why is that happening? It's happening because all of these birds are migrating from the south to the north at this time of year. It happens every year. Some of them happen to be sick this year, right? And so they say, well, don't fill your bird baths with water. Don't put seed out right now. Kind of let the birds go north. This happens every year, right? It's built into these birds. It's ingrained in them to migrate from the south to the north, from the north back to the south. In the very same way, what Genesis is telling us is that marriage is actually a part of God's creation. It's something that we desire. It's something that's built into us. But what this means, friends, is that even if you do not desire marriage, all of us desire what marriage has to offer. All of us desire the things that marriage has to offer. This is what's built into us. Now, let's, let's look at some of those things that we actually desire, okay, that we desire to find in a marriage whether we are married or not. The first thing here is companionship, or even beyond that, oneness. Okay? We long for companionship and oneness. As I said, Genesis 1 tells us that on day 6, God created from the dust the land animals, and then he topped off his creation with the creation of human beings. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, he says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we could talk about the image of God forever. I'm not going to do that. But I want to point out two things here 
The first is this. God says, let us. Let us make man in our image. Okay? There is a plurality to the God who creates. Now, now this has driven our Jewish ancestors sort of crazy. They've never known what to do with this line in particular, right? Because we have one God. We worship one God and only one God. But here we find this plurality to God. Christian scholars have always seen this as testimony to the Trinity, to a God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a plurality to God. The second thing I want to point out here is God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. Male and female. There's not only a plurality to God, but there is a plurality to God's image. There is a plurality to human beings. Often when we talk about the image of God, especially in the church, we'll say things like, well, I'm made in the image of God and you are made in the image of God. It's, it's, very, um, it's very singular. But the text says that in some way, male and female make up the image of God together. When you take one away, you lose something. The image of God then is not complete. Now, just tuck that away for a moment, if you will. Um, but remember, Genesis 1 is sort of the big picture. When we get to Genesis 2, we get the fine detail of, of day 6. Six times in Genesis 1, we are told that God created and it was good. Okay? God created this, God created that. After each one, he said, and it was very good. When you get to Genesis 2, you find that something changes. For the very first time, you read that something was not good. Chapter 2.18 says, It's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. So, God's answer is to make for him a suitable helper. A suitable helper. There are two words here that we need to reflect on. The first is that word helper. The man needs help, right? And a lot of women are nodding their heads going, he sure does. Um, <clears throat> the man needs help, but, okay, it's not like he needs a helper like a secretary who's going to run and get him his coffee every morning, nor does he need a navigator, right, to help him uh, find his way, otherwise he would be eternally lost. No, the word helper here um, does not imply any kind of inferiority, or any kind of weakness. In fact, it's a word that, that is usually in Scripture applied to God, that God is actually the helper of His people, and it actually usually has a military context to it. God is the helper of His, his people. And so it's definitely not a negative sort of helper or a weak sort of helper in any way. But we, what we have to ask here is, what kind of help does this man need? And I think the answer is twofold. For one, he needs help with his loneliness. He needs a companion. And here God gives him someone. But notice this someone is distinct from the animals, right? All the animals were also taken from the dust. And if you remember the picture, God brings all the animals before Adam. He gives them names, but at the end he says, no suitable helper was found. Nobody to be his companion was found. Nobody to help him with his loneliness until 
that woman is created, okay? She is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She can help with my loneliness. Second, the man needs help imaging God. He needs help imaging God. There is something about the man that is lacking on his own. This is where we find the word suitable. Okay? It's not just a helper, but there are two words here, a suitable helper. And the Hebrew word here that's, that's the word for suitable is actually a compound word that just means it's two words in one. The word is konegdo. Okay? The word keh simply means like or as, but the word neged means the opposite or against. So when you put those two things together, you get this word suitable, but what it really means is someone who is alike and yet opposite you. Someone who is similar but different. So when God wanted to find a helper for the man, someone to help him in his loneliness, he just found someone who was like Adam But now, we're looking for someone who is suitable, someone who is like but not like, similar but different, like him in being human but unlike him in being a woman, the opposite sex. Now, this is the answer to the need to bear God's image. The two shall be one flesh. It's in that oneness, okay, that we find the image of God. Different the same. Remember what the image of God is, right? God is a trinity of beings, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those persons are unique from one another. They're distinct, they're different, and yet they're all the same. Three persons, one God alike but different. This is how Adam begins to image his God when he is combined with the woman when they become one. They are united in their differentness. They are no longer two but one. Okay? So this is the makeup of marriage. This is the manifestation of what God is like. Male and female, different, the same. Now, the second thing that we desire in a marriage or outside of marriage is intimacy. Okay? The second thing we look for is intimacy that's built into us. For this reason, says Jesus, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh one flesh. Now, when we read that verse, I think when we read that term one flesh, we usually think that Jesus is talking about a sexual joining of two opposite sex people. And he is, okay? There is a complementarity to this picture of two people coming together. We have a term for this, right? We call it the consummation of a marriage. To consummate something means to complete it. It means to make it perfect. 
Um, to consummate a marriage means to complete the marriage. But that word consummate is also a sign. So a sign is a, is a part of the thing itself, and yet it points to something. It points always to something greater. And the consummation of a marriage points to intimacy. The intimacy within the consummation of the marriage points to the intimacy of the marriage itself. It points to something greater. Let me try, try and explain that. Um, we have a, a small group that's been discussing these topics over the last number of months. And um, this past week we were talking and Dan Green um, made an observation that I just found very helpful in these terms. But he was talking about this idea of intimacy. And, and what he noted was that when people talk about intimacy today, they mainly talk in terms of, of sex, of becoming intimate with one another. It's another phrase, it's another way of putting engaging in a sexual relationship. That seems to be how we view intimacy these days. And, and what he said is we get this notion very much from TV and from the movies because that's sort of our picture of a relationship, right? As soon as people get to know each other, they jump into bed with each other. And there's, there's no actually building up of any kind of relationship before that. There's no intimacy before that. And and according to Dan, what this does and what he sees quite a bit in his clinic is a lot of confusion, okay? Because if a relationship, if a couple of dates don't lead to a sexual relationship, there's confusion on the part of whoever wasn't ready for that. It's like, am I, is there something wrong with me, okay? There's also confusion in terms of, of same-sex individuals where where they do find some intimacy in a relationship, like deep, heartfelt conversations, right, with friends. But, but what they're told is that every inti intimate moment like that tends to lead to sex. And so there's confusion. Is there something wrong with me if that's not what I'm looking for? Um, friends, what I would say is, you know, TV and movies just are not very good teachers for us about marriage and about relationships. Um, I don't know about, well, a lot of you grew up with the same kind of movies that I grew up with. Think of all the Disney movies, right? How did every Disney movie end? It ends with two people getting married, right? And then there's these, these little words at the end, and they lived happily ever after. And, and you look at that and think, well, that was wonderful. They lived happily ever after. Never do they get into the details of what it takes to live happily ever after, right? What is it like to have a job and have to get up early in the morning when you're waking your spouse and all those kinds of things? What is it like to have to forgive one another? Um, what are all of those parts of of a relationship that builds intimacy, where are those? They're not in the movie, okay? And in the same way, we don't find intimacy in, in film or in TV today either, at least mostly not. Um, and yet, 
Intimacy is what we long for, is what we look for. You know, when I do premarital counseling here, um, may surprise you, but we talk very briefly about the topic of sex. And that's not because I'm shy, which I am, but that's not the reason. The reason is because a marriage relationship is about so much more. And, and you don't even understand the, the sexual side of the relationship until you understand all the other stuff, until you build up to that. And so we talk about things like communication, right? Do you have the tools to, to listen and to express yourself? We talk about goals and dreams. You know, where do you hope to be in five years? What do you hope to be doing with your life? How are you going to get there? How are you going to support each other getting to those places? We talk about family and friends. What kind of families will you be leaving? And what kind of family do you want to become on your own? We talk about roles within the marriage. Simple thing like roles, right? Who's going to do the laundry? Who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to do one of the most intimate things in a marriage? Clean the bathroom. That's all part of a marriage. How do we express our love for another person? It's by doing those routine things every day that says, I love you all over again. I care about you. And so I'm going to fulfill these responsibilities that I have. There's a, a side to intimacy that we never see anymore. You know, when Jackie and I were dating, we were apart for a year. I was at college at Dort. Um, there's nothing to do out at Dort. So, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. It's a great school. <laughs> and I loved my time there, okay? Um, but there wasn't a whole lot to do. So, we wrote letters to each other. And that process of sitting down, what am I going to write to this person? And you begin to share your heart. You begin to share your life, the big things, the little things. And then you get that letter back, and it's exciting to open and, and to read what's been going on in another person's life. That's about intimacy. It's something that we long for in a marriage. That's what it means to become one flesh. That phrase is not just about sex. It's about becoming intimate with one another. Okay, the third thing that I think we long for in a marriage is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. And fruitfulness, again, comes from this idea of the image of God. All right? We are image bearers of God. Within the Trinity, we find creativity and fruitfulness. Think of how the Trinity exists, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is this, this perfect unity. There is this perfect love. There is this perfect family, a perfect society of beings. Everything that God wants is there. He doesn't need anything else. And yet this God creates he creates a new thing. He creates a world, a universe, and He creates people. And He invites those people into the community that already exists. 
In other words, God's love is fruitful. It's always producing more. And God builds that into His creation as well, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And we understand that means children, but we understand it means culture. It means so much more. When God creates us, it's just the beginning. And He says, all right now, here's the start. Be fruitful. We image the creativity of God, the fruitfulness of God, when we marry. When we marry, we create something new, totally new, a new family. And we make space for this new thing. And we make space for all of the fruit that will come from it. And we see how the fruit of a new family continues to grow and we have culture and a new society and all of those things. Planted in us is the desire to be fruitful. Now, the path to that fruitfulness is, is twofold. It involves leaving and cleaving. We've all heard this, right? This is part of, this is part of what Jesus says. A man must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. First, there is leaving. A man must leave his father and mother. That's a kinship relationship. That's a blood relationship. And friends, that's the, that's the tightest relationship that any of us knows. Right? The relationship between us and our birth family. It's an incredible relationship. It's a tight relationship. And yet, there is something that actually makes us desire to leave that family. What is it? It's marriage. Actually makes us desire to leave that strongest relationship we have ever experienced. There's always this tug, this pull to go beyond even our own family ties into something new. This new thing is a new family. Marriage isn't just about leaving, but it's about cleaving as well. Okay? As I said earlier, when biblical scholars talk about becoming one flesh, it's more than just a sexual relationship. In fact, what some scholars say and have pointed us to is that this idea of being one flesh is actually this idea of creating another blood family. Okay? We leave one family and we become another family. And the bond of marriage is just as tight, is just as strong as that first relationship that we are coming out of. And what is it that makes it so strong? It's this idea of covenant, of covenant, of promising to each other that I will be with you always. Okay? I will be with you into the future. That's a covenant. And that's what allows us to build this new family, and to be fruitful. If you think about the person of God even, what is it that keeps the, the persons of the Trinity together? It's their, their character. Their bond to one another is that I will always be faithful. I will always be the person to you that I have said I would be. That's the basis of a new family. But now, I want you to think about this. God is not only a creator, 
He's not only fruitful in that sense, but God is also a sustainer, right? In other words, God takes care of the things that He makes. We don't believe in a deist sort of God, right? A deist God creates and then sort of lets the whole thing go all by itself. It just sort of runs on its own. We believe that our God is a provider. He is a sustainer. He takes care of what He makes. He provides every day sunshine and rain and seeds and flowers and growth so that we can eat, so that we are supplied for. He takes care of us, right? This is all part of marital cleaving as well, isn't it? This is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 19. He says, you don't leave your father and mother and start something new and then abandon it. You stick with it through thick and thin. You provide for what you've created. You take care of that new thing that you've made. And what we see in Jesus here and throughout Scripture is that Jesus is such a committed provider that He actually becomes our Redeemer. Let me repeat that. He is such a a committed provider that He actually becomes our Redeemer. Why? Because all of us are broken and all of us are sinful and all of us are unfaithful and our husband, our groom, if He's going to provide for us, He has to redeem us. As I said, marriage, you don't just find it at creation. You don't even find it just at the end of Scripture you find it throughout Scripture as God compares the relationship to His people as a marriage. And throughout the Old Testament, you see how that marriage goes, right? God's people are unfaithful. They turn against Him time and time again. And what does God do? God sticks with her peop His people. He sticks with His wife. He sticks with His spouse. And in the end, what that means is that Jesus totally has to give of Himself to make sure that the marriage survives. He gives himself totally on the cross all the way to death. His provision means that we become, or he becomes a redeemer. The church's one foundation. It's a song we're going to sing in just a moment. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. We get a picture of this Redeemer at the end of this text. Verse 12. Jesus talks about eunuchs. Okay? People who will never really get to enjoy the goodness of marriage. Eunuchs. Eunuchs, if, if you don't really know... Um, Eunuchs are those who have had their genitals removed, oftentimes by kings who needed somebody to, they could trust to watch over their harems, watch over their wives. And so that was the job of eunuchs. Jesus gives us here actually three categories of eunuchs. He says, first, some are born that way. Second, some are made that way by men. They're cut. And third, they choose to be that way. Jesus does something extraordinary here. 
In that first category where he says some are born this way, what Jesus is doing is he is acknowledging this category of brokenness in his creation. There is brokenness in the creation. We live in a world that's been impacted by sin. And friends, this is going to come up again and again in in this series, right? There is brokenness to the creation. What that means is that some people are born um, predisposed to depression. Some people are born with only one arm. Some people are born intersex. They have no clear gender. Some people are born attracted to the same sex. No fault of their own. It's a brokenness in the creation. It's something we live with but suffer with. Second, there's another category, says Jesus, where we suffer at the hands of other people. And this is where so many of us fit in, in this idea of relationships and marriage and human sexuality. And that is we've been sinned against by others in some way that it makes us unable to marry. It makes us unable to find any intimacy. And then Jesus says there is a third category, and this category has never come up, at least not in his Jewish culture, and that is a category where we can choose singleness. Jesus has created here a new way for people to live. And in doing so, he's telling people that, yes, even singles can find a life that is complete and full. You can find in singleness the companionship, the intimacy, even the fruitfulness. Even the fruitfulness that was meant for you in marriage. Now in marriage, okay, we always think it sort of comes naturally. That was the creational path, right? Sort of a natural path, that creation. Today, that path is supernatural. It's supernatural. It has to be. The only path to these things, right, to companionship, intimacy, fruitfulness, the only, the only path to these things for sinners is to recognize how the true bridegroom, our Redeemer, gave up his body for his spouse. It's the only path. Single, married. Jesus says in John 13, I give you a new command, a new command for a new community. What's that new command? Love one another, what? As I have loved you. How did he love us? He gave himself for us. We learn this in marriage. But friends, more than that, we learn this in the church. We learn that Jesus gave himself up for us. In the church, we learn that we we are known by God, and yet we are loved. It's this idea of nakedness that you find in Genesis 1. We can stand naked before God, completely exposed, and yet not be afraid because we know that Jesus Christ has covered up all of our sins with his blood. And so we can stand exposed and we can enter into an intimate relationship with our God through Jesus Christ. And friends, it's only people like that 
who can stand naked before God, who can also stand naked before one another and find the intimacy with one another that all of us long for. It's the hardest thing to do, to expose ourselves to somebody else because we think if I do this, I'll be condemned, I'll be laughed at, I'll be ridiculed. But if we trust that Jesus has covered our sins, we can actually do that. Jesus welcomes eunuchs. You know, in Deuteronomy 31, this is a big deal, in Deuteronomy 31, eunuchs were specifically banned from entering the assembly of the Lord. There was no place for them, no place for them among God's people, especially among the worshiping community. And yet Isaiah prophesied that a day was coming. This is what he said. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose these or choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. In other words, I will give them fruitfulness that they can't even imagine right now, a fruitfulness better than sons and daughters. What Jesus is saying, friends, is there is nothing in you, no brokenness, no sin that has been committed against you. There is nothing in you that keeps you from the love of God available to you in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can keep you from a community of true love, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Except one thing, and that is our own distrust, perhaps, of the one who invites us and says, come to me and find the life that you are looking for. Trust me. I will give it to you. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, as in so much of our lives, even all of these issues of human sexuality come down to one thing, and that is trusting you. Trusting that you are good, that you are loving, that you are merciful and forgiving, and trusting that your yoke will lead us to life. Life that is full here and life that is everlasting. Increase our trust in you. And Lord, help us to continue to declare to the world that Jesus is the one worth listening to in all of these things. This is our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.